you have your Bibles, are going to be in Matthew chapter 12. So we've been going through the Gospel of Matthew, and we've come to Matthew chapter 12. And Matthew chapter 12 is all about conflict and controversy. You may be thinking, great, that's the last thing I need in my life. More conflict and more controversy. But here's a chapter all about conflict and controversy. It's conflict and controversy that becomes very public and then also becomes very personal. And so what we're going to do is we're going to walk through this chapter and we're going to see Jesus because Jesus is publicly confronted and then he has to defend his disciples. He has to defend himself. He has to defend his his mission and his his way of life. And so he's publicly confronted. And you know, if you think about it, there as much as we might not want to think about it, um, there's few things in your life that are more significant that contribute to the quality of that life than the way you deal with conflict and controversy. You know, some people avoid it. Some people seek it and pursue it. But you know, in almost every relationship, whether it's marriage, family, neighbors, one of the most significant aspects of how well you'll find satisfaction in your work is the nature of the conflict and controversy surrounding those people that you're around. So this chapter really is all about these confrontations with the king. And so we're going to enter in. And one of the things we want to kind of hold the tension in our minds is chapter the heart Part of 11 and 12 is really at the end of chapter 11, where Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon, on, upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, gentle and lowly. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so there's this, this contrast between Jesus whose relational yoke, when you're around him, you don't feel burdened. You don't feel weighed down. His yoke, it's easy and light. Versus the Pharisees who, when you're around them, they heap burdens on you that you feel just relationally weighed down. So what we're going to do is we go through this chapter, we're going to kind of have a basic kind of controlling metaphor. We almost want to think about it like a, a courtroom scene where you have the, the prosecution or those who are bringing the accusation. And then we have like the defendants, those who are being accused. But we also have this defense attorney who's going to defend them. And then we have a verdict. So we're going to look at one through eight, kind of thinking in those categories. So look at me in chapter 12, starting verse one. At that time, Jesus passed through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples were hungry, and they began to pick and eat some of the grain. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, See, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he and those who were with him were hungry, how they entered the house of God and they ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him or those with him to eat, but only for the priest? Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath day, the priest in the temple violate the Sabbath and are innocent? I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You would have not condemned the innocent for the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. So we're going to walk through and kind of unpack this public controversy, this public conflict. And so first, let's kind of notice who the accusers are or the prosecution. 
And do you notice you can actually see them and it'll be real important because the whole chapter is framed about one group's public accusation of Jesus and his followers. Look in verse 2. When the Pharisees saw this, then look in verse 24. When the Pharisees heard this, they said, this man drives out demons only by Beelzebub. And then look at verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. So each of these are three panels, three scenes, and each of the scenes is driven by either an accusation attack from the Pharisees. So let's kind of understand, right, who are they? Who are these characters? And one of the keys to making sense of this next section in Matthew is getting a good sense about who they are. And uh, one of the unique kind of trends in modern New Testament scholarship, you know, it's kind of a, I think we used to know a lot about the Pharisees, and then we didn't really know anything about them, and now we're starting to learn more. And uh, there's been a rise in kind of a, I don't, what's the right word? Where you, not alternative history, where you kind of um, change people's perception about a group. So, you know, it used to be kind of obvious. You read through the Gospels and they're the ones who are critiquing and attacking Jesus. And, and we'll see in verse 14, wanting to kill him. But there's been a more kind of sympathetic reading about the Pharisees that's come up. And a lot of literature, what we call literature from the Second Temple uh, Judaism, a lot of the literature uh, is really a, uh, interesting because it sheds kind of a nuanced light on who they were. And in fact, this past summer, I did a, uh, a seminar kind of diving into the Second Temple uh, Judaism literature. And one of the things I found out is this really is difficult. You have to have your Hebrew at an exceptional level to even know what you're looking at. And there's a lot of challenges here. But when you kind of look at, all right, who, let's get a kind of paint a, a sketch. All right, who were they? And so it's a group of kind of lay people, normal lay people who are very, uh, very committed to the, the rise of Israel. They clung tightly to certain traditions. And you'll see this throughout, especially Matthew and Mark. There's certain traditions that they inherited. Uh, they believe that these traditions had come down from the fathers and it came from Mount Sinai, originated uh, with Moses and at, at the, on the mountain. At Sinai, you have the, the written law and then the oral law. And they were both equally important, equally authoritative. And then about the second century, so about 150 years after this time, many of those, the oral law began to be written down and started to be codified. So it was written down a thing called the Mishnah, which was written down. It had six major uh, kind of categories, laws about agriculture, festivals, marriage, civil laws, criminal laws, ceremonial laws. And then that got brought together with certain uh, rabbinical interpretations of those things. It was called the Talmud. And so at this point, these laws hadn't been kind of codified, hadn't been written down, but everyone kind of knew what they were. So I don't know if you've ever been in scenarios, maybe it's this way at your house or your family or your work, where there's kind of the stated policies and procedures, and then there's all the unwritten rules. And people kind of know what they are, you know, if one of the only examples I can think of is kind of like baseball. You know, if you're a baseball fan, baseball has the actual rules of the game. Then there's a lot of unwritten rules that if you violate, you better watch out because little balls can become hurled at you very, very quickly. So there's unwritten laws. And at this point, they're all unwritten, but people, people know them and they're all around certain uh, realities. Actually, one of the, the writings in the Mishnah, the Mishnah of 011, uh, says there's three kind of core uh, commitments 
that uh, someone who was, who was a Pharisee in this time would have. Their first kind of core commitment would be very deliberate in their judgment. So deliberate in judgment. Everything they do is intentional. Everything. Everything matters. So you're very intentional in what you do. And then the second one is your job would be to raise up many disciples. So it was an evangelistic disciple-making movement. You were making disciples. But then the third thing, the third thing that would mark them is you would make a fence around the law. That was one of your primary focuses, to make a fence around the law. You think, all right, well, what does that mean? So the idea was that uh, the most important thing for the health of the community, the health of the society, is that we obey the law. And if we were going to obey the law, we actually can make a fence around it so we don't even come close to disobeying. So the idea was like, like in the garden that Joe referenced when uh, Satan comes to tempt Eve, you know, the command was do not eat of this tree. And you remember what Eve says, we're not to eat of it or even touch it. Well, they would say, actually, that's a fence that Adam made for Eve's good. All right, the command is don't eat. But if you don't touch it, then there's, you're not even coming close to eating it. And so you'd have these fences. So the command is don't take, um, don't take the Lord's name in vain. So the way we can do that is we just won't ever say his name at all. And so you can kind of get, all right, here's the sense. We, if, if the line is up here, I mean, all of you have had kids and you tell them, you know, don't go to this line. And what do they do? I mean, they get their, like, they see how many toes can hang over the line before you call them back. So their motto is, all right, look, we're going to create fences where you're not even in the same neighborhood as breaking the commandment. And so one of the commandments, don't work on the Sabbath. So what they say, all right, here's what we got. We're going to actually construct 39 different categories to define what work is. And so it's really important as we enter into this debate, in some sense, Jesus' debate with them is not over the importance of the Sabbath. It's not over the importance of the commands. It's over what does it actually mean to honor them and to obey them. And they took this thing very serious. You know, in the Maccabean Revolt, there was a whole companies of soldiers who were slaughtered because they refused to fight on the Sabbath. So what did their enemies do? They attacked them on the Sabbath. So this is, this is life and death for them. And so what they see, notice in verse 1 and 2, they actually see Jesus' disciples walking through the grain fields, and they start to pick the grain to eat. So they accuse that's work. You know, what work were they doing? Well, they were harvesting, they were reaping, they were, there's all types of, of work they were doing. But as we go through this, I think it's important, you know, the, the battle is not whether we're going to honor the Sabbath or dishonor the Sabbath. You know, Jesus is going to honor it, but he's going to show us how to honor it truly. He never breaks it, but shows what it means to truly honor this. And as we move through this, I think it's really humbling because both groups really love the word. They love the Bible. I mean, they want, their goal and desire is to honor this gift that's the Sabbath. And they love the Bible. But it's the actual application and implementation that gets them in in trouble. They want to love it. It's very similar to Job's friends. You know, when Job's friends come and counsel him and you read the book of Job, a lot of the things they're saying, it's actually true. But then you read at the end and God is angry with them because he says, you have not represented me properly. You have not spoke truly about me. So what was their problem? The things they said were, in, some, or was in many ways, true. They just didn't apply to Job. And so here's the challenge. Right, how do you take these things and make them uh, apply? So they're going through the green, uh, grain fields. They're actually gleaning. This is something to be really important as we think about what the Sabbath is and these laws of 
of gleaning and uh, going through the fields. You know, at that time, Galilee is the breadbasket of Israel, very rich, fertile land, uh, uh, tendency for lots of exploitation where wealthy landowners could, could build them up. You know, our roads kind of go around people's land in theory anyway, not at this time. You just went right through it. So it's interesting. All right, who... Who brings up the complaint that they're eating and going through and eating? Now, notice the key line in verse 2 is going to be one of the key challenges all throughout this whole section. Notice what they accuse the disciples of. See, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Notice that word Jesus responds in verse 4 where he talks about David. He did which was not lawful for him to do. And actually look down to verse 10. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And then verse 12, so it's lawful. So the whole question is, all right, what is lawful? And that's a kind of a loaded word because it, it means like what's biblical. Remember in this world, what's biblical, what's in line with the biblical law is also in line with the legal law. So this is bringing a formal accusation and charge saying your disciples are breaking the law. They're not just doing something that's unbiblical. They are breaking the law. So a lot at stake. They're not doing what's proper, what's biblical, what's right. What's, they're doing something that's wrong and illegal. So let's actually think about the accusers, the, the prosecution, the Pharisees. Notice, you know, where does this, because one of the things we want to use the word to hold up, hold up as a mirror, and we want to see ourselves in what ways are we like them. Notice what they do in verse 2, kind of the, the pharisaical two-step of condemning those around you, is first they saw, and then they sentenced, they condemned, they spoke. They saw, they noticed, and then they sentenced, they spoke. And it's worth thinking, how did you know? Like they're walking through the fields and they pick some and start to eat. How did you even notice? Were you watching that closely? And it's worth thinking about. All of us have certain things that when we come into any room, we notice. And so what are the things you notice? I mean, and then attach like moral significance to those things. I mean, one of the most obvious illustrations is that everyone notices whether you have a mask on or not. So you notice, you go in rooms, and there's, you can be one of two people. You can notice those who don't say, oh, look at those blights of society, those plague spreaders who are trying to kill us all. Or you can notice those who do. You can see them outside and say, oh, look at those mindless fools just parading around this, uh, this, this ridiculous theater. You can notice. But what else do we know? I mean, we do it all the time about so many different things. You come in a room like this and you kind of notice. You can notice what people are wearing. Are they really dressed up because they're so stuffy and self-important? Or are they dressed down and wearing flip-flops and how dare they contributing to the pajamification of this world? <laughs> You, we, we notice those things. And the sad thing is that is so often we notice those around us. You know, you go out to eat with friends for dinner. What do you notice? Do you notice the caloric content count of what they order? Mm, they're ordering, probably shouldn't. That's not going to help the cause any. <laughs> or do you notice how much it costs? What in the world are they doing ordering that? What a, they're so frivolous with their money. Do you notice the behavior of other people's children? What are the things you notice about others? 
And you, know, and you all know what it's like to be around people where you know they're noticing. And, and what's it like? You feel a certain weight where you're, you're watched and your defenses are up and your guard is up and they're watching. And I thought about it, and if we're honest, I have this in my, in, my, in my manuscript, I say, if we're honest, Christians are the worst at this. But then I started thinking about it, that's actually not fair. That's not fair to Christians. I don't think we're the worst at it. I think we're just as bad as everybody else. I don't know if that's a compliment or not. Because <laughs> I actually have some friends who, are teach, who teach in college, and they say one of the biggest transitions over the last four or five years is they are just over, they're just amazed at the paralyzing fear of their students where they're so worried that anything they say or anything they post on social media can be the thing that, like, destroys them. And you can have your light, like, if just one line that is out of lockstep with the kind of the whatever's currently acceptable. And so they're afraid. They live in fear that they're always being watched. And so that's something that's just part of being in the world we're in. But that relational load, you know how heavy that yoke is, how burdensome it is. And that's what the Pharisees are doing. And that's in utter contrast to who Jesus is. His burden is easy and his yoke is light. So take a moment, just examine your own heart. Think about your own relational dynamics. Is your burden easy? Is your yoke easy? light. You know, the Pharisees, what do they do? They see, and then they criticize. They see, and then they're negative. They see, and then they're complaining. There's no gap. There's no gap between what they see and then their spoken opinion. And so kind of where are you in that, that, that scenario? Or maybe you get to the point where you see, and then you adjudicate, and you critique, but only in your mind. You don't speak it out loud. Do you actually know how that's eating yourself? You're eating your own soul up that way. Or maybe you're the kind of person who always sees and then always comments. You know, one of the challenging life lessons we're trying to work on in our home is you don't have to say everything that pops into your head. It's a path of wisdom. You don't have to say everything that pops in. So you walk by somebody's room and you smell the most wretched smell. You don't have to announce it. You can just keep it in your mind. You don't have to say it. And that's a wonderful lesson for our society. We don't have to say everything that pops into our mind. So where are you on that spectrum? But now notice the defense because it's so interesting. They attack Jesus' disciples and then notice Jesus rises up to defend them. He's almost like Mama Bear who's, gonna, who's going to get, grab his own and he's going to defend them. And he engages in a very sophisticated, hard-hitting debate about the nature of Scripture. Three different times, look in verse 3 and then 5 and then 7. In verse 3, have you not read? And then verse 5, have you not read? And then verse 7, if you knew what this means, you wouldn't be doing this. And we actually have to feel the force and energy because in one sense, they're not just thinking about things that don't matter. Look in verse 14. After this exchange, the Pharisees go out and plot how they can kill him. So this is high energy. There's intensity. And then Jesus is confronts him with, have you not read? Yeah, you know, I've been challenged by this all week in the way he publicly confronts them. Had somebody one time in the midst of a challenging conflict tell me, don't be nicer than Jesus. So, well, I'm, <laughs> I'll try not to be, but I'm not Jesus. 
And so notice how he confronts him. He confronts him with, with energy. Have you not read? That would have been offensive. You know, sometimes we look back kind of in, in, in this world and we think of people as being uneducated and dopey and not very intelligent. And we, that's just because we're modern people and love to exalt ourselves and put everyone else down. And we forget how utterly intelligent they were. You know, in this time, now it's really interesting when Jesus speaks to the crowd, he says, have you not heard? To them, he says, have you not read? And the idea that they hadn't read these things would have been shocking because they probably had all of them memorized. They said, have we not read? <laughs> not only have we read these things, we've memorized them. You know, basic Pharisee, you would have memorized all of the Torah. You would have memorized all the Psalms. That was just a given. Every just average educated person had those things memorized. And then to really kind of move to the head of the class, you would have memorized most of the prophets. And sometimes we, we lose sight of kind of the, the, the scale you know, I was reading a couple of weeks ago about ministerial requirements that John Chrysostom thought for a minister in the third century. He thought it was just a given. You couldn't even, even think about being a minister if you didn't have all of the Gospels, all of the Psalms, the Book of Romans, and then most of the Torah memorized. That's just how you start. You can't even think about starting until you have those things. And I'm ashamed to say I wouldn't even be considered in that world. And so when Jesus says, have you not read? This is very confronting and he's challenging them. And then notice he gives them three examples. We'll kind of call these exhibit, exhibit A, B, and C. What does he bring up to help solidify their case? First, exhibit A, he says, have you not read the example of David? Remember what David did when he was on the run from King Saul and he came into the tabernacle and all they had to eat was the, the bread of the presence. That's a show bread. It would have been baked every single day. And then the light of the tabernacle, the, um, the lights of the candles would be turned to shine on it to symbolically represent the Lord's blessing over his people, that the Lord's light and countenance is over the 12 tribes, fresh bread every morning to symbolize that. And he said they didn't have anything to eat except that. And he took it and he wasn't violating the Sabbath. I mean, haven't you read that? Now, what's interesting is you can think how the Pharisees might respond. They might say, um, objection, your honor. Uh, yes, we've actually read that. And there's a little difference. Um, for one, David's men were in a life and death situation. If they didn't eat, they were going to die. I don't think your disciples were in that situation. And that was David. You're not David. That's something David could do. And I don't know if you've ever been in situations like that. I had one time in a situation where kind of a, a leader were, was being challenged of exercising kind of domineering authority, and he compared himself to Moses. So this is how Moses leads. And all of those under him thought, well, there's one problem with that analogy. You're not Moses. And you could hear that. That's exactly what they would say to Jesus. Well, like, wait, that was David. Who are you? Which is the fundamental question of the Gospels. Who is this? And then he goes to the next one and says, all right, David's time was a time of, of necessity, emergency. Maybe you say, all right, desperate times, desperate measures, but your guys are just walking on the Sabbath. Notice exhibit B, the work of the priest. He actually takes them to Leviticus and says, don't you realize that the priest... What do they do every single day on the Sabbath in verse 5? They violate the Sabbath. So their work actually doubles on the Sabbath. So they have to do the twice amount of their normal labor. And so the assumption in the first one is, all right, if it's, it's okay for David, it's okay for me. Notice that's a subtle claim that he's the king. 
And then notice here, he's making another subtle claim that his followers are the priest. They're doing the same thing that the priest do. And of course, you can think their next response was, well, yeah, well, that's when they're in the temple. Now, what are you saying? Are you saying you're greater than the temple? And then notice, so they don't miss it. Do you know what he says? What does he say in verse six? I tell you, one greater than the temple is here. And then he brings up exhibit number C. He takes them to Hosea chapter 6 and is pointing to the prophets, the prophetic critique that you can have the right rituals, but if your heart's not in the right place, it doesn't do you any good. Just like Joe mentioned earlier, the great brokenness is our brokenness with God, then ourselves, others, and the world. And the sacrifices are intended to restore our relationship with God. And what should flow out of that is in restored relationships with others in the world. And he says, if these are broken, there's, there's a short circuit somewhere. And that's why he quotes, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And what he's doing, he's claiming to be that real prophetic word, giving the real meaning and intention behind these sacrificial systems. And the whole point was this relational restoration. And then notice kind of this, these bombshells. If you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. And so there he's given the verdict. The actual king, the judge, is rendering the verdict that you have condemned the innocent. That's the verdict. And in all of these situations where we notice things and then we make an accusation, the great danger is that we will condemn those who are innocent. And this is the kind of thing that makes Jesus angry. So you would not have done that. So we have to be very careful when we judge. How sure are you when you're rendering your opinion that you're not condemning the innocent? We need to feel the force of this and feel the force of the defense, how Jesus is going full on to protect his own. But then notice it's real interesting. Look over at 14 and 15. What do the Pharisees do? They go out and plot how they might kill him. And then 15, Jesus aware of this, he withdraws. And it's so interesting because at this point, Jesus is not looking to pick this fight. Like they come and pick the fight with him and they challenge him. So he's going to defend his own, but then he's going to step back. So as you look at this and just think about it, and the way we'll wrap up for this time is just think about one of the things these stories are meant to be mirrors so we can see ourselves. Who, who do you see yourself? Like, do you recognize yourself in this story? Do you recognize your tendency to be one who sees and notices and critiques and condemns? Or maybe you actually recognize yourself as one of the disciples. I mean, notice the disciples are being publicly attacked and publicly shamed. They're bringing a legal case against the disciples for formal charges. So can you imagine how would you feel then? Would your reaction and response be instantly to start defending yourself and to start pointing the finger back? You know, it's so interesting that Jesus takes the role as their advocate and their defender. So maybe, think about your own mind, maybe do you find yourself critiquing and condemning too much? Maybe that's going to actually eat you away and destroy your life. Or maybe you find yourself defending yourself and constantly arguing and defending. You know, one of the great gifts of the gospel is that we're justified by faith. We're not justified by our own arguments or our own labor. He is the one who will defend us. And justify us. And it's also just an interesting kind of thought experiment. You know, how else could the Pharisees have responded to this? What is something else they could have done? I mean, this is what they did, but what could they have done? 
You know, a little alternative history. You know, first they see a situation. Why? You know, notice there's two things they didn't do. They didn't ask to help or they didn't ask for help. You know, they see people in need and they're hungry and notice what they do. They condemn them for how they're going about getting their food. Notice what they don't do. They don't offer them any food. They don't offer any help. So maybe the first step before the condemnation happens is to offer help. You know, maybe they were much more scrupulous in preparing their lunch and then they showed up and they didn't have their lunch. So here, I'm going to share some of mine with you. They didn't offer to help. And I wonder how quick are we when we see people in difficult situations as the first response to condemn or to help. They didn't offer to help, but then they also didn't ask for any help. I mean, I wonder why they didn't say, all right, what we're seeing here is actually blowing up all of our categories and we're having a hard time computing because we're going to give you the benefit of the doubt that you love the Sabbath and you love the word and you love the Lord and you want to honor him. So we're giving you the benefit of the doubt, but what you're doing is not computing with how we think this should work out. Help us. And I wonder if any of them just went to and said, help us, help us make sense of these things. And they probably would have found that his yoke is easy. And his burden is light. So where do you find yourself here? You know, one thing that I think is really ironic is on this Sabbath, they get condemned because they take something and eat. And they eat it. And after the resurrection, the transformation of the Sabbath, every Sunday we gather around and we actually not, we don't receive condemnation. We receive life by taking one of his gifts and eating it. So on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread. And when he had given thanks for it, he broke it and he gave it to the disciples. And he said, take and eat. This is my body, which has been given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Then likewise, at the, after the supper, he took the cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink this, all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. And whenever you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. Now let's take a moment and ask the Lord to help us and then to pray for those around us who are in need. Lord, we thank you for your word and we thank you the way it both can convict and then can compel and it can protect. So I pray that you help us. We, we confess that there are ways and there are certain things that we are too eager to notice and too ready to condemn. And so we ask that you forgive us for those things. We thank you for the reality that when unjust and untrue and false accusations come flying our way, that you are ready to defend us and protect us. So we ask that you help us to be the kind of people who don't contribute to these things. We ask that you help us be the kind of people where our relational yoke, the burden of being around us is one that it's easy and it's light. But then we thank you that you carry the weight of our full uh, failures and our full condemnation. And now we look around our world and we just want to pray for those who are in need. We see so many needs around us and we pray for Will and Deb and their daughter, Nicole. We thank you that she could come home this week. And so we continue to lift her up as she battles her uh, chemo treatment. We pray that you would heal her body and that you would strengthen her and guard their hearts and protect their faith. We pray for all those like uh, Brad Supple and those on his team who went out to Louisiana this past week to help those who are under the burden of natural disaster. 
So we pray that all those who have felt that wake, that they would be surrounded by your grace and your peace and that you would preserve them through this rebuilding time and by your spirit, you would lift them up and all those who are required to rebuild, that you would encourage them. We pray and we thank you as we remember 9-11 and the 20th anniversary. I want to thank you with grateful hearts for all those men and women who in the moment of difficulty, in the moment of tragedy and hardship, they run into brokenness and run into places that are on fire to try and help. And so we ask that you help us to, to remember them and honor them and help all of us in our own way to have eyes to see those who are weak and needy and hurting and hungry, and then give us the courage and the strength and the energy and the opportunity to run and meet those needs. And all this we ask in Christ's holy name. Amen. And now may the love of a dying Savior, the power of a risen Savior, and the hope of a returning Savior be yours now, this week, forever, and always. Amen. Go in peace. <laughs>